All right, Derek. Well, first of all, I just want to say again how much I appreciate your time. I know, especially given the circumstances, how busy you are. So it's wonderful to meet you and, and talk to you. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. It's great to be here, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I look looking forward to our chat. Sorry Likewise. it took so long to get us together. It happens. Well <laughs> worth the wait. Um, I, I want to start with you in this position at the Central Texas Food Bank. And maybe we can start with your interest in the position in the first place, why you were interested in that, how the process went that led to you getting the position you currently hold. So uh, I was with the American Red Cross for almost a decade. Yeah. And I had multiple roles. Uh, first one was a local CEO for Central Texas Red Cross. And and uh, then I had, you know, multiple roles, national roles within the Red Cross. At one point, I managed operations for nine states. Hmm. And uh, I found myself um, traveling around 85% of the time. And <clears throat> I found myself uh, longing or missing the primary feeling that I received that made me shift from the corporate uh, from a corporate role to a nonprofit or the not-for-profit role. And that's a feeling of belonging, a sense of community, uh, and my own value proposition. Yeah. I, I don't want to head toward giving back. I just want to give, period. And um, and uh, as it turned out, a very good friend of mine, uh, I had shared that with a very good friend of mine and had been quietly looking for about a year and a half, <laughs> quietly. <laughs> and um, a friend of mine called me one day in D.C. I was in D.C., that's Red Cross headquarters, and he said, uh, uh, I just gave somebody your name. The Central Texas Food Bank is looking for a new CEO, and I gave him your name. Please don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so uh, – it, so I did. My first interview actually was with the existing CEO who was retiring. Uh, probably the most intimidating interview that I had ever been in. And he was very nice. But I am interviewing with the person that I am trying to replace. And and we're in this beautiful facility mm. that they had only been in you know, a few months that he had built yeah. for the most part. That's intimidating. <laughs> and uh, and knowing that any wrong answer and I was history. <laughs> because this was his baby. Yeah. He was going to give up his baby. And uh, so uh, as it turned out, they decided to take a chance on me and uh, and they gave me the job with him and you know about you know 11 other folk that I had to talk to on the on the way to on the road to the job and and uh, I got it, and and it's been literally the most fascinating experience I've had in my entire career. And I've had some really cool jobs yeah. in my days. <laughs> you were saying before we started recording that one of the most interesting things that you noted when you first started researching the position and, and getting involved was how complicated it is, yeah. how complicated the logistics are, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Speak to that. What, what, what did you learn in the first few months in the, on the job? that this is likely one of the most complex business models that I've ever been involved in. Yeah. And, um, and there are far more moving parts than just dumping food on a truck and delivering it someplace. There is how you acquire the food. There are the resources associated with the food. There's a supply chain that sources the food that you distribute. There's the distribution channel that's associated with all the partner agencies that get the food. Uh, there is the staff, there's raising money to buy the food. Yeah. There's being concerned about throwing away food. Uh, there are just uh, a number of different components. There's, you know, we have uh, a commercial kitchen where we prepare around 1,100 meals a day mm. during the summer, particularly for kids who don't have access to the free and reduced lunch program. And we partner with about 90 camps around the 21 counties that we serve hmm. and we deliver food. We ramp up for those summers. This is pre pandemic. Uh, and then we distribute uh, two meals or a couple of meals a day to those camps for those children uh, to eat. 
Uh, so and and then there is the legislative arm yeah. of this. Uh, there's you know there is the fact that we distribute food to 21 counties, and all 21 of those counties are different yeah. and different needs from the county judge to the people that we serve. So there are just an enormous number of moving parts, uh, independent of the independent of the logistical components. There's the variation in the clients, and then just the numbers uh, of people that uh, we end up serving. Uh, uh, there's the demographics associated. You know, we automatically assume, and this was an erroneous assumption on my part before I started. When we think hunger, we automatically default to homeless and think that the majority of the people that we're distributing food to are homeless. Well, that only accounts for 7% hmm. of the food we distribute. Hmm. Uh, you know, almost 70% of the food that we distribute are to working households. Yeah. You know, that was another, oh my God, aha moment. Uh, these are people who are just literally month by month caught in the tyranny of the moment of having to decide whether or not they're going to pay utility bills, their rent, take their kids to the doctor or buy food. Yeah. Those people, I feel like, are generally invisible in mm -hmm. our culture, largely, at least in the, in the greater media culture or in the culture at large. Who are these people, right? I mean, you you deal and your organization deals with helping those those families and those people every single day. Mm -hmm. Describe what their lives are like to people who might be listening and are interested in who you serve. We were kind of chatting about veterans yeah. before. Uh, Twenty five percent of those are of those we serve are from veteran households. Uh, we do mobile pantry. We do a mobile pantry mobile pantries to the VA clinic both here in Austin and the one up in up north in uh, in Temple. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we have a significant number of seniors as we would expect. Uh, we we have backpack programs and after school programs for children. Sometimes we tend to forget about what happens after they leave school yeah. in the evenings, during spring break, during the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. How do our babies eat? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and one in five of those that we're serving today are our children. Uh, and then again, there's the working household. If we take Austin for an example, we know that Austin can be quite challenging when it comes to the cost of housing. And, um, and that, you know, creates a ripple effect. If I'm paying more than market, if, you know, if I'm typically today not making a living wage in the first place, uh, if I'm making 10 bucks an hour in the first place, and I have to spend 40% of that disproportionately on housing, then I'm literally counting my pennies. And we had, I, I personally had several conversations with clients and they would say, yeah, the money that we're getting typically runs out about the third week of the month. And then we have to figure out how to make up the rest. Yeah. And that's the gap that you guys help us fill. For people who are listening to this, who know about the organization, are familiar about, about its existence, but are a little hazy as to how it works. And maybe I'll start with the people who need your help. The people who are hungry, who are making those decisions between food and going to the doctor, mm -hmm. for example, or food and paying their utility bills. How do they signal in our society, let's take Central, uh, Central Texas specifically, that they are in trouble and mm -hmm. that they need your help? How does that work? So there are two groups that that, that that falls into. First of all, reach directly, you know, they can reach directly out to us. Yep. I mean, if you go to our website, centraltexasfoodbank.org, there is a button there that you punch that says find food now. And you can enter your zip code and it'll tell you all the places where we're distributing food. Also, we don't, you know, we distribute food ourselves, but that's only about 20% of what we distribute. 80% of the food we distribute is done through a network of partner agencies, soup kitchens, church pantries, food pantries, and the like spread out across our 21 counties. So those those counties, let's choose Bastrop, and the, the one of the larger ones is the Bastrop Emergency Food Pantry out there. You know, they know, you know, their clients can reach out to them. 
Uh, and also their clients know that they can get to us with our mobile pantries as well. Our faith-based community plays a pretty significant role in how we find people as well. Hmm. Because I would, uh, I, pre-pandemic, I haven't looked at these numbers post-pandemic, yep. but pre-pandemic, about 60% of our partner agencies were faith-based. So, you know, our faith-based community plays a major part in helping individuals who are in need find us. Yeah. And then there's these things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I just picked up my cell phone for those of you who can't. <laughs> uh, and then there's just tip, there's just word of mouth. Uh, when we do a mass distribution and by a mass distribution, these were the distributions that you saw on television during the pandemic where there were hundreds and thousands of cars lined up. You, you think the word doesn't get out yeah. that that's there. And, um, and, and the numbers just, this has been going on for the past 30 years and food banks have been growing for the past 30 years. That's not anything to be proud of. That means that we're chasing something that that we're still chasing a problem that I'm not sure that we're able to solve. But like you and I were chatting before we went on air, until we're able to solve poverty, then the likelihood of our being able to solve hunger is, a little, is going to be a little bit ambitious. Yeah. So I think that's very well said. Yeah. It's it's a it's an organization that you wish didn't need to exist in the first place. I, but we'd love to work ourselves out of business. Absolutely. But <laughs> I, I I know there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that are deeply grateful that it does exist. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the food specifically. Mm-hmm. Where does that where does the food come from? And this probably dovetails into this subject uh, additionally or subsequently. Where does the money come from that allows an organization like this to function at the scale that it does? So a significant amount of the food we get, thank goodness, is donated. Yeah. And it's not food that's expired. Uh, it may be, you know, I'll call out our, you know, our, our, our favorite partner, HEB, who is amazing to the food banks across the state of Texas. I don't know what we would do without them. Uh, and uh, as we are having this conversation, our three major food donors are uh, are the USDA is the USDA, uh, Walmart, hmm. and uh, NHEB. Hmm. And so, you know, they distribute a significant amount of food to us, and we but we purchase food to fill in the gaps. Like for example. You know, they'll give us food and they'll give us and we try and get fresh fruits and vegetables as well because we'd like healthy foods, but they're not always going to give us their protein and we might have to go out and purchase that protein. So ordinarily we would spend about, you know, in excess, you know, a little over a hundred thousand a month hmm. purchasing food hmm. to fill those gaps. The pandemic threw that into a total different loop and we were spending ten times that amount during the pandemic per month. So, so that, that really took us to a totally, a totally different level from a hundred K to a million. Now, the good news is, uh, the USDA stepped up really well and, you know, quite a few of our conversations with our elected officials, and this is to the entire country. This is not just us. Yeah. Uh, quite a few conversations with our elected officials you know, was about, thank you for doing this. We need you to continue to support this because if this drops out, if this drops down, we can't buy our way back up to this level of yeah. distribution. And where do we get our money? Through the, you know, how do we end up get any money to buy food? Through the generosity of our friends and neighbors in Central Texas. Uh, they, you know, this is a unique town. Austin is. And uh, I'm not sure if it's the fact that we have one of the largest concentrations of nonprofits of any city in the country. Mm. At any given time, there could be eight to 10,000 active nonprofits wow. in Austin. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Now, the vast majority of them have budgets that are very, very small, but there is a strong concentration of nonprofits uh, here, here in Austin. And when so far, when we've asked, uh, our community has responded. Hmm. So I have no, I have no complaints. We are, you know, both from, uh, both from a donation perspective, as well as from a volunteer perspective. Hmm. 
If uh, I think our volunteers donated 140,000 hours last year, uh, I could easily equate that to about 60 headcount that yeah. I would have to have yeah. if they weren't doing what they do from packaging food here to being to distributing food at those mobile pantries that you see on television. Yeah. And I want to dovetail into the pandemic, which I know we also talked about briefly before we started recording uh, in a minute. So before I do that, in ordinary times, am I right that the majority or nearly all of the money comes from private contributions from the community? However, given the pandemic situation, an excess amount of money, you said, I think the word 10x, um, had to come from a governmental source? Is that, am no, I understanding that's not, that correctly? that's not correct. Okay. <clears throat> the 10X was the cost of food, yeah. of what we pay, what we were paying for food. Right. Uh, the, the, what we received from the USDA was in fact in the form of food. Gotcha. Really good food. Yeah. Food that farmers would rather be selling at HEB. Uh, I'll throw in the part around the tariffs actually were our friends. Hmm. Early on, uh, when is this, 2016, 2017, 2018, uh, they turned out to be our friends as time progressed because if there are tariffs and countries aren't taking in the food, well, it needed to go someplace. And they were kind enough to distribute the food to the food banks. Mm. So that was literally, they literally made, the, the, the USDA made a major, major contribution to our hunger challenge that the pandemic created. Yeah. So it was a, a direct food donation. That it you was were a direct, from the yeah. USDA. There were several different types of grants, and through those grants, there were different amounts of food. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Let's get into 2020. Uh, <laughs> you may have a heart attack during this conversation. I'll try not to. <laughs> I'd like to start with for, from your perspective, you're the CEO here. I'm curious what the point during the year was that you realized how big of a deal COVID-19 was going to be for you and this organization specifically? I think I can go back before then. Okay. Uh, when I worked for the Red Cross, there were various, you know, simulation exercises, you know, how to prepare for a hurricane yep. that's on its way. What happens when a tornado drops down? Well, one of those just happened to be a pandemic. And that, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. That was the most frightening exercise. And we used the, the, the uh, 1918 yeah, as an exercise. Sure. And that's, that, was the <laughs> yeah, that was the simulation exercise that we went through. And so I remember checking when this first started, I, start to get, I started to get very shall we say, concerned. <laughs> I'll use that word. <laughs> you know, since I'm on the air, I will use the right kind of words. <laughs> but, but I'm not going to repeat <laughs> what I was really thinking. And it was an oh something moment. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I also started thinking was, uh, you know, going back to uh, some previous disaster experiences when I saw, when you see people empty shelves at yep. Walmart. Yep. And I knew at that juncture that if nothing else, we needed to prepare a little extra for over the next few months for what might happen from a food perspective, because the last thing I wanted to do was run out of food. So we actually started preparing for this in early March hmm. when yep. they first started talking. We started, and by preparing, I mean you know, let's start picking up some extra food to stock in the warehouse, to stock in the freezers, because when this thing hits, there may very well be a run on it. And, and, and we focused mostly on food that we, that was shelf stable. And we focused on food that we could freeze, that mm. we could use a little bit. So we wouldn't have to worry about throwing it away yeah. if this thing actually did just go away and yep. mysteriously disappear, which it did not. Yeah. The very, the you know, so that was the oh my goodness, it's actually happening. When we did our first mass distribution, it was at Nelson Field. It was a rainy day, hmm. it was cold, and the cars were, we, we, 
there were five or six rows of cars in the parking lot an hour and a half before we even showed up with the trucks. And then the cars, the line of cars went all the way down the access road of 290, down to the next traffic light and around the corner. And we looked at this and that's when we went, this is going to be big and it's not ending anytime soon. Do you remember the date or roughly when that was? Or is this March of 2020 likely? April. It's April. either okay. end of March yeah. or early April. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've got a, uh, we, uh, I've got an aerial drone view that I will send you okay. <laughs> of that. And I can't, I think it was either early April or the very end of March, but that was when we all realized that something different needed to be done. Yeah. The other part that we don't talk a lot about, and I always try and bring that into the equation is the impact on employees and volunteers. Sure. Uh, because, you know, you know, distributing the food is one thing, but trying to totally re totally change our distribution model. And that's what we literally had to do on the fly yeah. from client choice to, uh, to drive through. And that was the first drive through that we'd actually have. Uh, that was challenging as well. And just trying to, you know, help staff members understand and do everything we could that I could to try and keep them safe as well. And at the same time, they had their own family members who were being impacted by this. Their children were being kept from school. So they, so I had moms who were, and dads who were trying to figure out how I balance work and this new family dynamic that I have at home. So that whole thing was twofold for any food bank or any organization. But from a food bank perspective, not only did we have to be concerned about the growing demand from a food perspective, we also had to be very concerned about the safety and well-being of not only those that we serve, but our own staff. If you walk through this building, you'll see signs that say that still say six feet apart, Uh, you know, uh, we, I still have, uh, a mask mandate in the building as you saw. Yeah. So we had to, I don't, I'm not, if you ask me, I'm not sure which one was more challenging, yeah. uh, the, you know, scaling or just trying to keep the team safe. I think a lot of people now also forget what the level of ignorance that we had at that time in March and April of 2020 and not knowing how deadly yeah. this virus was going to be for, for people generally. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so you, you see these lines, you have this aerial footage, um, you realize this is going to be most likely an enduring serious issue for the food bank specifically. Where's your mind at at that time? <laughs> Are you thinking, you know, this this is too big of a problem. This is something we're just going to have to address as best we can. What, what where does your 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 mind go as as the leader around here? <laughs> I think um, uh, there is today how to get through today. Yeah, and also how if we can plan for tomorrow, and uh, and what how we use today's information or today's data because we literally had to live off data that was forever changing yeah. a little bit uh and at the same time again uh, continue to manage the anxiety that was literally running through the halls of the building itself in terms of you know, i have mobile pantry coordinators you know who who are distributing food who literally would come in contact with 1500 different people a week. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, (laughs) and just the anxiety and keeping them settled, knowing and keep helping them to continue to understand. I understand I'm going to do everything conceivably possible to keep you as safe as I can. And Oh, by the way, if you can't do this and we had a handful I'll find you something else in the building to do because there's there was plenty to do. And so we repurposed quite a number of our own employees to other roles yep. in the food bank just so, you know, just because they were just not ready to go out there and meet the masses. 
So my head was always around how we continue to procure food, procure funding to buy food so that we are never, hear me, never in a position where we run out in one of those distributions. And to my knowledge of all the ones that we did, and we did over 60 of those things during 2020, we only ran out of food maybe twice. Wow. And, um, and so it was, and which I couldn't be more, more proud of. Yeah. And then just, then the other part was we have this, amazing opportunity to tell this new story. You know, there has always been hunger, but now the but the pandemic shined a very bright light on the hunger problem in this country. And how do we make sure that we optimize on that and maintain that momentum and get the story out? Because advocating for those that are hungry is the other side of the equation, which mm. means we have to tell the story and we still have some, you know, we still have these pre had those preconceived notions that if somebody was hungry, it was something that they had done wrong themselves. Yeah. And, um, and the pandemic literally changed that because people with six figure salaries, you know, who had lost their jobs were literally running out of money and having to get in line to ask for food. And, uh, and I think, um, uh, if there's a bright spot for this pandemic from a food bank perspective, that is clearly the bright spot. The country knows, and I'm hoping we don't have short memories or too short term of a memory. The country officially knew at that juncture that we have a serious hunger, you know, a public health problem yeah. uh, related to hunger in this country. I think to some degree that's just empathy, right? And understanding that it can happen to you too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you're right that uh, that deeply that deep narrative in the culture of when negative things happen to you and you need help, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you did something wh- wrong. <laughs> wh- what What's your story, right? I mean, you you work with these people, and your organization <laughs> works with these people. How, how how do you try to correct that, or how do you what what how do you try to articulate what you think is a more accurate version of that? Everybody has a story <laughs> and we don't know that story. And either we ask to obtain more information or we give them all the benefit of the doubt that they are there. I had multiple, I did multiple interviews where early on where people would, I get asked, you know, so what do you do with, you know, with people who are in this line that shouldn't be in this line? And I, I simply say, I don't know who those people are and I don't know their story. I just assume that they're in the line because we need help. And as long as you're in my line, I don't care if you're driving a motor scooter or a Lexus. And there were plenty of those that were in line <laughs> uh, and they had to sign up just like everyone else did. Uh, everybody has their story, and I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they're here because uh, they need my they need our help, and that's what we do. Yeah. And and so many. I'm thinking during the April May time frame is when we first started calculating, uh, you know, you know maybe the first round of data. And we found out that you know, something that we do track are the number of first timers. Our first timers, the number of first timers, were up two hundred percent during the pandemic. You know, during the you know first ninety days of the pandemic, that pretty much tells you that people have lost jobs and they were doing okay up until that point, but now they need some help. Yeah. I think a lot of people will find it astonishing that only twice did you run out of food during the last year, given what, what, what you must have gone through, what the organization must have gone through. What do you attribute that to? You've alluded to some of the reasons why you think that may have been the case, but how do you explain that, that that was even possible given the circumstances? Well, in the interest of transparency, uh, first, just to manage the event itself, we had to put time limits on yep, it. Yeah. We start at nine, we're done at 12. Mm. Uh, and what I was trying, what we were literally trying to make sure it never happened that we ran out at 12. Now, that's what, 12 PM. I 12. Assume. Yeah. That's 12 PM. Okay, 9 AM yeah. to usually 9 AM to 12, you know, 12 PM or one, 
three or four hours depending yep. on the location. Yep. And uh, now, and what we would do, you know, we, if you were in line uh, at, let's say we're stopping today at 1 p.m. If you're in line at 1 p.m., we still get you through the line. What yep. we do is we stop people from coming into the parking lot. Gotcha. We're done here. Yeah. Uh, and we, you know, and, and, uh, you know, props to, and thank yous go out to APD, the sheriff's department, the constables who all came and had to manage uh, and direct that traffic yeah. because we could not do that. That's yeah. not our core competency. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so, um, and we also had for the ones that were in Austin, we had a plan A and we also always had an extra truck staged <laughs> as a plan B as yeah. a just in case. Yeah. And uh, a couple of times we had to use it. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we, we planned appropriately, uh, once we, and once we shifted to the drive-through model, we were giving away boxes of groceries. That's also easier to plan for hmm. because if I expect, if I expect 2000 cars and, uh, and of those 2000 cars, uh, maybe, you know, half of them are multiple households because we distribute groceries per household. Uh, then we know we need to have X number of boxes of yep. food. And we plan for that. Uh, I also mentioned something I also want to reference that happened at the very beginning. When we started social distancing, and I'll use vo our volunteers as an example, I could use, I, we could usually you know, manage around 100 volunteers in this building per volunteer shift. And what they would do is they would pack the boxes. Yeah. Well, once we started to have social distancing, we had to drop that number by 70%. Yeah. But fortunately, I mentioned our faith-based communities, we had you know, a number of the large churches that were not having services at, who put volunteer groups together and built those boxes for us. Uh, we had about five, you know, we had five additional sites going, building boxes pretty much literally all day long. If that had not happened, we would not have been able to meet that initial demand. We couldn't have just got we we couldn't have built enough boxes. Yeah. So I want to throw that out. Yeah, well. I appreciate That's that. Partnering with the community. Yeah. <laughs> so we we're having this conversation in May of 2021, and um, we were also speaking about this before we started recording. That you know you have a lens and a window into which you can recognize the second order consequences of the shutdown that we've all gone through over the last year plus in the U S um, what are you seeing now? Right. The country is getting vaccinated. A lot of people already are fully vaccinated. And I think a lot of people want to believe America's back and these problems that we went through are gone. What are you seeing now on a day-to-day -day basis in, in our community specifically? Well, it's, 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 while it's a little early yeah. in uh, in the in the comeback, if you will, yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I'm still seeing numbers that are forty percent greater than they were pre-pandemic, uh, and the likelihood of that continuing, I really think, is pretty high. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that we saw during the government shutdown a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was January, February of 2019, maybe yeah. even 18. Yeah. I think it was 19. And that was only for 30, 40 days. We saw, you know, and these were for people who had been working before. Yeah. Uh, we saw three, four, five-month recovery times for them. I mean, the ripple effect is high. Once you... Don't pay your rent. Don't pay your mortgage. Don't uh, get behind on utility bills. You're playing catch up for you know for for several months, and we saw you know average three to five month recovery periods before we saw people stop coming yeah. and say I got it. Now take that and just turn that into a year plus, and even if you're just doing fundamental math, you know there are so many other components that impacted it. You know, in this case, families, uh, family members, family members who have died that were generating income. Yep. Uh, the ripple effect is huge with this. So there, uh, my expectation is there will be a significant number of people that may not even recover. They will likely, 
unless we're able to get them out of poverty, they will likely be food bank clients for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do as we wind this conversation down, I, I want to speak about two, two final topics. One is more of a like societal philosophical subject that I would love to get your thoughts on, which is the fact that this organization has to exist in the first place, right? We don't live obviously in a perfect world without problems, a utopia, but we do seem to have a problem here um, in the culture generally. In your mind, in your judgment, you live and breathe this stuff. What do you identify as the root causes of so many of the reasons why an organization like the Central Texas Food Bank has to exist in the first place? And what do you look to from a, a policy perspective, from another perspective, as potential solutions on a more systemic level? We all know that, <clears throat> you know, that the root cause of hunger is poverty. Yeah. Uh, if people can buy food, the likelihood of them coming to us is pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure they'd you know, much rather you know, go and purchase their food than to have to, uh, than to have to come to us. And which means that, you know, we're going to be struggling with this for years to come until we're able to lift individuals up out of poverty. And I can only, you know, which means that food banks across the country, we're just filling gaps. Yep. That's what we're doing. Yep. Um, and until we recognize that uh, you know, we are going to need to focus a significant amount of this effort on the policy decisions that are being made, we're going to continue to exist. You know, everything from minimum wage, not keeping up with the rate of inflation forever. That that's that's a piece of low hanging fruit. Uh, we just yeah, we just passed. I can't remember the bill, but we just passed some legislation. Uh, the House, I think, passed legislation just maybe a week or so ago that changed the amount, the car amount, <laughs> or the value of your second car, if you are receiving state benefits, uh, you know, that raised that number. That number hadn't been changed since the 70s. Hmm. And I think it, the number was around $4,000 or something like that. Hmm. You know, but you know, this isn't a city that's full of mass transit. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to have a car. Uh, you know, quite a few of our clients uh, have have you know are you know are working two or three jobs. Both parents or both individuals are working. There needs to be a second. There needs to be a second vehicle. But that's if that second vehicle is could only be worth X amount of dollars, or you lose your benefits. That's part of the challenge. That's another policy, and that's another policy that's there. That fortunately, you know, hopefully, that we're adjusting. We've got to figure out a unified way where we all agree on two things. One that you know, one is how do we get more of our friends and neighbors and citizens closer to a living wage? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And and does that need to be do we need to look at it from a variance perspective? You said that you talked to Fort Worth and you know, living wage might be different in Fort Worth than it is in Austin, that it might be in Waco, mm. that it might be in Kyle. Uh, you know, what's the you know, what's what's a living wage? Mm. We've got to figure out how to solve that problem. Mm. And once and that's just one step. Yeah. But the money that comes into the door that they're able to infuse back into the economy, until we're able to raise that number, food banks are going to exist. And we know the numbers speak for themselves. We know that the you know that minimum wage has not kept up with the rate of inflation, which is why food banks you know have continued to grow and be in existence. And it's not just us. It's Everything from us to you know, to uh, you know to childcare organizations to you know affordable health care. The list just goes on and on and on. It's uh, it's, it's it's not just us, mm -hmm. and it just simply has not is not kept up, and that's why the numbers have continued to grow. Yep. Our citizens 
and our people are just continuing to fall further and further and further behind. Yeah. And I see no end to that insight. So unfortunately, the likelihood of the need for food banks continuing to increase, unfortunately, it's pretty high. Yeah. I hope you, I'm answering your question. You you are, and okay. I, one one thought that popped in my head when you were mentioning that is that it's unfortunate that organizations like this do have to exist in the first place. That being said, there wasn't mass starvation in the country, right? There are other nations in the world in history that have experienced something like that when a when a major episode affects the entire culture. And mm-hmm. fortunately, while it was uncomfortable, while I'm sure there were moments of of hunger. You didn't see that in America. Mm-hmm. And I think organizations like yours need to be lauded for that. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of these interviews, uh, I assume. And I, I would be curious to give you, or I guess interested in giving you a platform to also correct any myths, any misunderstandings that you tend to find in the general population that you interact with about this place or about food banks in general. Basically, an opportunity to just sort of correct the record or provide additional information that you think is relevant for people to know about. Hmm. If anything sticks out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say that um, clearly going back to the fact that, you know, people or, individuals who seek out our services don't necessarily want to be here. Yeah. Uh, it's not, I, I want to really attack that misnomer or that perception that, uh, you know, someone isn't working or they refuse or they refuse to work or to our earlier point that they've done something wrong, yeah. that they've made a mistake. Uh, you know, call it my personal opinion, but regardless of what the job is, if you're working two or three of them, you know, eight, you know, you know, 16, you know, 18 hours a day, you ought to be able to make enough to feed your family. But we know that's not the case. Yeah. Something's wrong with that picture. Uh, and we need to know that, you know, uh, the overwhelming majority of those that we serve are from working households. They're trying there's just not enough there to make ends meet. Yep. Uh, the other component is, you know, you know, please let's not forget what happens to our children when they don't have access to free and reduced lunch programs while they're in school. Oh my goodness, what do you think happened to them when they were at home? Because yep. our numbers, you know, like our household numbers went up. Uh, because the children went up because they weren't in school getting the food from there. Now here we partnered with, uh, you know, with the uh, with the Austin uh, Independent you know, Austin you know, Independent School District, and we did several partner distributions with them, and we kind of helped each other during the course of the pandemic to help some, but uh, you know, but but that's even larger, and um, and I think the last one is we're going to be here for a very long time uh, because we are only one part of the overall problem that keeps individuals having to come to us day in and day out. And that's the whole, that's the whole poverty issue. And, um, and also remember that we still live in a country where people live on a shoestring and not a lot of money in savings. Yep. So if anything goes wrong, they have no they, they have no recourse in certain cases but to but to come to us. Yeah. Before I get to my final question, I, I would I always like giving this opportunity too for people who are in positions like yours who are leading organizations in our city, which is for individuals who hear this and are interested in helping you or helping the organization, what is the best way from your perspective that the community can, can help given what you've just been through over the last year and what you probably will be going through over the next many months and years mm-hmm. to come? Um, <clears throat> continue to support us. Uh, you know, one, you know, we are continuing to have to buy food. We do appreciate monetary donations. 
uh, we can take a dollar and turn it into four meals. Hmm. In certain cases, you know, with sometimes we, when we have matching donors or, you know, we can turn it into eight meals. Uh, that's one thing. If you know someone that's hungry, you know, send them to us. Uh, both of these from centraltexasfoodbank.org. You can make a donation or you can also find food. Uh, volunteer. Uh, we, you know, we have, we, we depend heavily on volunteers to help us sort food, prepare food. And uh, last but not least, help us tell a story, just <laughs> like you're doing now. Um, I would argue making sure that there is awareness, recognize that there is hunger, and people are hungry by no fault of their own, far more than you realize. And it's not just the homeless population. Yeah. Uh, uh, realize that and help tell the story. And even if it's not you as you know yourself, tell somebody else and maybe they can help. And, um, and, and even if it's not us, help somebody. Hmm. There are thousands of nonprofits in the city in the human services or the you know, social services space you know, ranging from homelessness to hunger to healthcare, uh, all of those, you know, all of those are elements that are associated with keeping people, uh, you know, in the grips of poverty. If you're not supporting us, just support somebody. Yeah. Uh, because we are, you know, we can't do it by ourselves. Our clients are not going to be able to do it by themselves we're going to have to do this as a community and that's, you know, supporting agencies that do this. That's having conversations with our elected official advocating for all these organizations and saying, you got to do something for these people, uh, mm. just a little help. And in most cases, once you get them out, they usually stay out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they usually stay out. Last question I want to ask you is about, is about you and about mm. your, your background. I think you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you at one point were not, you were in the business world, I think from, mm -hmm. from what you mentioned yeah. and, and that, you know, you were not Almost always in the years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always interested in how people like you become who you are, you know, <laughs> um, how, how, what, what happened in your life? What, why did you leave what I assume was a relatively or quite lucrative career outside of the nonprofit world to come and do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you've probably had, I would imagine one of, if not the most stressful years of your life in the last 12 months. <laughs> Without question, <laughs> nothing even close. <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt about that. What, what made you make that transition? What in your moral compass in your soul what what was it about making that shift to you that mattered to you to do that kind of switch personally i think personally i am somewhat of a poster child probably for social services myself yeah uh now i grew up poor didn't know i was poor yeah. <laughs> but uh you know, grew up poor, uh, managed to, uh, you know, uh, I was adopted and, uh, you know, never you know, didn't find out who my blood relatives were until I had children of my own. Uh, I, um, <clears throat> I remember I have a soft spot for hunger in schools because I remember, you know, working two jobs minimum myself just to get through college being one of the first in my family, the first in my family uh, to even go to college. Uh, you know, I had to take care of aging parents. So independent of, you know, the successes, and I have no complaints about what I learned from there. But quite frankly, I just reached a point in my life where I needed to make an adjustment just to feel right. Wasn't that I felt bad? No. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, no. All my, you know, all three of the companies that I work for from a corporate perspective were extremely good to me and I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a whole heck of a lot. Mm. But I finally reached a point where I needed something different. I needed something more. Uh, and I needed, 
you know, example I remember giving once was uh, I needed to be up at three o'clock in the morning preparing for a presentation and I needed it to mean something. <laughs> uh, I, that's one of the examples that I used. I really needed it to mean more than it was than I actually saw it meaning. And that's not a complaint. It's yeah. just I needed it to, to do something different. So, uh, you know, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, during my corporate days, I had sat on several nonprofit boards. And uh, and during that time period, uh, you know, said, you know, well, maybe the second part of my life or career, maybe I'll run a nonprofit. And I remember telling a mentor, and I've been really fortunate to have to have had some very good mentors, both on the for-profit side and on this side of the house as well. Hmm. And at that point, it was for-profit. And he said, well, why don't you just go ahead and go to work for a nonprofit? And I said, I can't afford (laughs) (laughs) to go to work for a nonprofit. No bonuses, no stock options. Are you kidding me? I got a kid that's about ready to go to college. (laughs) So, uh, but as luck would have it, uh, you know, and however you want to define luck, (laughs) Uh, an opportunity presented itself, and that was the Red Cross role for Central Texas. Uh, they gambled on me, and um, and the rest is history. Yeah, and, you know, fifteen years later, here I am. <laughs> Derek, I want to say I think on behalf of a lot of people in our community how much I admire you and how much I admire <laughs> the work that you you and your staff do here. Um, a lot of people who had a, an inconvenient year but not a desperate year mm-hmm. have a hard time understanding what it was like to have a desperate year. And I feel like you guys work with people who have had a desperate year. And without organizations like this, I think it would have gone from despair to something far worse. Um, so I just want to take a moment to just say thank you for, to you, both for your time today, but more so just for the, the efforts that you and the organization have provided for years, but especially in the last year when people really needed it. So, um, thanks man. I, I, I I loved meeting you and, and I really appreciate the, uh, the time. Well, I have to, you know, certainly thank the most amazing team that I get a chance to work with every single day. You know, a very supportive board of directors who are all just, you know, who bleed the mission almost and a very, very supportive community that allows us and, and believes in us and allows us to do what we do every single day. Yeah. Couldn't do it without you. Best of luck to you. Thank you, man. Thank you. All right.